I just recently saw a headline from one of the generals of the, uh, the Iranian army that says that if we, the next time we go to war, or if we go to war with Israel, it'll be the last war that Israel fights. Now, for those of you that know Bible prophecy, and for those of you that um, are keeping in tune by watching your news and looking at what is going on in our world in regards to the nations that surround Israel, all you need to do to review that is to go to your Bible and read the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and chapter 39, which gives us a list of the various nations that are in the last days going to come up against the nation of Israel. Well, Russia is a key player, and Iran, or Persia as it's listed there in Ezekiel, is another key player in that battle that is going to come up against Israel. We know the end of that battle. We already know it, because God has already told us what the end will be against those that come up against his people, Israel. And so pray for the nation of Israel. I know that our government is making every effort they can to negotiate some kind of a peace deal. And we know that it tells us in Ezekiel that when they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes. And so there's going to be something of some sort where it appears that Israel is going to be in a state of peace or in a state of peace with his neighbors. But then that lie that is going to be given by Satan to really Russia and the leaders of Russia that are going to form a coalition of nations that are going to come down against the nation of Israel. It's all in your Bible to spend time looking at it. And it's very, for those of us that know the Lord, exciting days. For those that don't know Christ, they're just looking at it going, wow, what is happening in this world? And we're going, what's happening is what God has said will happen. And that's what's exciting. And so with that said, uh, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 3, covering verses 1 to 20. I titled this morning's message, The Final Verdict. And let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you for causing us to be in this place this morning. Lord, you brought us here. You got us out of bed. You brought us into this church building this morning to hear something from you. And Lord, I I pray, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts your truth. That you would ground us, Lord, in our our faith. That you would ground us, Lord, in in the gospel message. That we would have a clear understanding of where we stand because of what you have done for us. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, have spent, I believe we've been maybe six weeks now into these first three chapters of Romans. 
a couple of the key verses that this people have attributed to this letter is in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And I put those two together because some people believe verse 16 is the key verse to Romans, and others say that verse 17 is the key. I'm going to say that I, I could say both of them are. And so this is what it says. Look at your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's words. This is Paul saying this about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And then he says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, those two really groups of people that we see in Scripture. Verse 17, for in it, and in that it is speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul quoting from Habakkuk. And in that those words there, the just shall live by faith, I believe is a key sentence, a key set of words for really what we are looking at in these first eight chapters of the book of Romans. We also read in verse 18, and this is really the start of this first, if we want to say this first segment in Romans. It says in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Man stands under God's wrath. God is going to execute His wrath upon this earth and the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. I think most of us here this morning are okay with that. I think most of us as Christians, as we look at the world that we live in, the state that it is in, the, the, the sin that is running rampant, we are thankful that God will one day execute righteous judgment. The thankfulness that we have in our heart is that that wrath won't be against us. But it will come against the ungodly, against those who in righteousness turn away from God. John wrote in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's the heart of our Lord. That's what He desires to do. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's the heart of our loving God. But it says, it goes on to say, he who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and it tells us that men 
loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Think of your days before Christ where you actually loved your sin more than you loved God. You actually loved to follow after the things of the world rather than the things of God. That's who you were before Christ. And then things change after a person gives their life to Christ and you become this new creation in Christ. He, all things become new. It's a whole different reason for living. John wrote in verse 36 of that same chapter, he says, He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. And then it finishes with this. But the wrath of God abides on Him. God's wrath. God's judgment day that is coming. It's what these first three chapters of Romans brings out. Remember, I keep saying that we have to look at the ugly stuff before we can get to the good stuff. Before we can get to the good news of what Christ has done. We have to look at this issue of sin and ungodliness. We have to look at this judgment that is going to come upon this world and this wrath of God that abides upon people that we're around every single day. You have loved ones. You have family members. You have neighbors, co-workers, people that you're around that you love that apart from Christ, they stand under the wrath of God. It gives us all the reason to want to open our mouth and to tell them, you don't have to be. You can have life. You can have eternal life. You can be set free from that wrath that is coming. In chapter 1, Paul says the Gentiles, they stand guilty before God. Remember, I, Jew and Gentile are the two classes of people that we're talking about. The intellectual, Paul brings out in chapter 1. The intellectual that tries to question God. He stands guilty before God. The ignorant also stands guilty before God. In other words, it won't amount to anything for someone to just plead ignorance before God someday. The ignorant stands guilty before God. The atheist stands guilty before God. The agnostic, the person that wants to just stay in the middle. I'm not saying there's not a God. I'm not saying there is a God. And I just like this safe zone in the middle. He stands guilty before God. The indulgent, the one that wants to just live it up in this life stands guilty before God. The idolater, for whatever those idols are, stands guilty before God. The impenitent sinner stands guilty without excuse before a righteous God. That's what Paul says in chapter 1. The Gentiles stand guilty before God. We read in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. 
being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Verse 22 tells us that there are those that profess to be wise, but they become fools in doing so. You see, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. All the, the wisest person in the world, it's foolishness to God. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. You see, God will not always strive with man. There'll come a point at which God says, if that's the course you want to go, then go. And God will give man up to uncleanness. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. God will give them up. Verse 28, God will give them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Those are scary words. Those are words that are real words from God that says that God will not always strive with man in his sinfulness and his rejection. Paul finished his indictment against the Gentiles by that whole list from verses 29 all the way to verse 32. This indictment, this list of ugly sins. We won't even read them right now, but you can read them in that, in that list. He finishes that, and then he says this in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, and not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. Not only do they do these sins, but they even approve of those who practice the same things with them. Remember I shared that that's that vortex of man just kind of going down that vortex faster and faster. That's what sin is in the world today. It, it gripping the hearts and, of men and women like that vortex just going down. It, it's downward spiral to destruction. God is going to judge sin. He, he's going to be a righteous God. Aren't you glad that God is righteous? That God will execute His righteous judgment? I, I, don't, I, I don't want to spend eternity with the list that I read here from verses 29 to 31. I used to be one of those, but God saved me. You used to be one of those, but God saved you. And when you stand in the presence of God, it's not that you don't want all of these sinners to be with you, but they need to be changed. They need to stand in the righteousness of God. In chapter 2, Paul says that the Jew also will stand guilty before God. In verses 1 to 16, Paul spoke about the self righteous, the religious people of the day, the hypocrites, the moralists, 
Those that say they've got it all together. Those that think that God and themselves, that we're all right. And they base it on a lot of faulty things. These words actually could be applied really to both Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 1, he says, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. He says, whoever you are who judge, for whatever you judge, whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You see the religiosity to all that? People that say, you know, I, I, I would never do those things. But they do it in another way. And Paul says, you know, the people that are the moralists, the people that are religious, but they don't really have a relationship with God, they tend to be condemning people. They tend to be judgmental towards others. They tend not to see their own sin, but they can see it very clearly in the lives of other people. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, Paul says, against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's, he's, he's pointing that question to think about to those religious Jews of the day. And even to those Gentiles that might have practiced their own religions that thought they were all right. Verse 5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Paul concluded this section in verses 12 to 16. He says, For as many as have not sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's speaking about the Gentiles. They didn't have the written law given to them. And as many as have sinned in the law, speaking about the Jews, the Jews had God's law given to them, they will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. In other words, these Gentiles that did not even have the written law, when they did write things, when they did things that were contained in the law, they were really doing what God desired for them to do. And they didn't even have the written law. He says, you, uh, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. He says their conscience. And see, the Gentiles that didn't have the written law, they had a conscience. Also bearing witness in between themselves and through their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. You see, on that day of judgment, all the religious people, all the people that say, well, I, I live up to the law. I live up to this. I do this. I do that. God says, I see your heart. 
And man says, you know, I, I'm concerned with my actions and how I look on the hour. God says, I look on your heart. God's going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul specifically turns to his fellow Jew. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He turns to his specifically to his, his fellow Jew, and he says in verse 17, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest in the law, and you make your boast in God, and you know His will, and you approve of the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do you do not commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? You who abhor, I abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, and the Jews did that, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name, and this is what Paul says against his fellow brothers, his Jews, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a strong indictment against them. Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, though they thought it was. They were only concerned with the outward circumcision. And Paul is making a point that God wants it to be the circumcision of your heart, not the circumcision of your flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. He's talking about the law whose praise is not from men, but from God. A strong indictment against the Jew. We come to our text this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. This is the final verdict that Paul gives against Jew and Gentile. Paul is going to make a case here that would stand up in the court of law that he's going to make a case that both Jew and Gentile, when it comes to the righteousness of God, that they all fall short. That not one of them will be able to stand before a righteous God. Paul does this by asking three questions. You see, Paul was a Jew. He knew how his fellow Jews would think. He knew what he just wrote to them in chapter 2, what we just read. And, and he knew that it was going to raise questions in their mind. I mean, we're God's chosen people. We have His written law that has been given to us. And, and they put a lot of stock in all of those things that God had given to them as a special people. And the question arises in verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? That word advantage. What advantage? It, it could ask, actually be translated, 
what surplus or what excess do we have then as a Jew? What, what extra privileges do we have then? I want you to think how a Jew might think when he thinks about what God had given, given to him. Excuse me. And what advantage then do we have? The Jew might have been thinking, are you saying that we stand condemned just like these Gentiles? Is that what you're saying to us, Paul? We're God's chosen people. Are you saying we stand condemned like them? Remember the mindset of a Jew towards a Gentile? You weren't God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, you're, you're just Gentile dogs. You're nothing special in the eyes of God. None of the promises that have been given to us have been given to you. That was the Jews' thinking. What advantage then do we have as a Jew? What profit is there in this circumcision that has been this given to us by God? This seal, this sign between us. Are you trying to put us at the same level as the Gentile? He just did that in chapter 1. And then he, ha- and then he brought that indictment against them in chapter 2. Paul knew this question would arise. He just told them that circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. He said that in chapter 2, verse 25. It's profitable if you'll keep the law. Nothing wrong with circumcision. God did give it in His law. He did make a covenant with His people. It was from God. But it's only profitable to you Jews if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. That didn't set very well with them. It doesn't set very well with a religious person when you tell them that just by them trying to keep the Ten Commandments, it's not sufficient. By telling them that if you're water baptized, that won't get you to heaven. By telling them that if you know that all your years of going to church every faithfully every week, that wasn't enough. It doesn't set well with religious people. It did not set well in the Jews' mind for Paul to make these kinds of statements to them. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, the Gentile can actually do the same thing. And will not the physically uncircumcised, speaking about the Gentile, if he fulfills the law, won't he judge you as Jews? Wow, how do you think that sounded? The Gentiles now judging a Jew? Even with your written code and circumcision, you're a transgressor of the law. The second question that arose had to do with the Jews' heritage. In other words, doesn't our heritage as a Jew amount to anything? We're God's chosen people. 
Does that amount to anything? God gave us this circumcision as a sign of the covenant between the Jew and him. Doesn't that amount to anything? If circumcision doesn't profit us anything or give us righteousness, then why would God have given us the covenant of of circumcision? Why would He have done it then? Are you saying that our unfaithfulness means that God will be unfaithful to us and His promises? This might be like the reasoning that some people have today when they put their trust in other things other than Jesus Christ. They might say, I was born in a Christian family. Have any of you ever said that? We have a whole line of Christians in our family. I have a whole line of preachers in my family. I've heard that one. Preachers go all the way back in our family. In other words, they're just hoping that that'll help them out in heaven someday. I was baptized in the church. I'm a member. I had somebody tell this to me just recently too. I'm still a member of a church in Virginia where I used to live. As if that membership does anything for them. That membership will not do anything for them when they stand before God. Nor will baptism. Nor will, you know, coming to church regularly or giving to... None of those things will give them the righteousness that is needed to stand before God. This was driving the Jew crazy. And Paul was making this indictment against them. He wanted them to realize that they couldn't put their stock in the law and the land and the temple and in all the promises and the covenants that were given to them. Paul answers the question in verse 2. He says, in much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. To you Jews, God's Word, His written Word was given to you, but the oracles of God actually speaks not just of the written Word, but actually the revelation of God to them. God revealed Himself to the nation of Israel through His written Word. They had all of the Old Testament at their disposal. Unlike the Gentile nations, they had, Paul says, much in every way, and chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. You have this privilege of being a Jew. You have this privilege because God has entrusted to you, committed to you, or entrusted to you the very oracles of God. And with that, it brings responsibility. You have a responsibility as holders of His Word to take that world out to this world. 
And these promises and these covenants that God made with Israel, they still stand today. Did you know that? Even with their unbelief, even with their unfaithfulness to God, that these covenants and these promises, that they still stand today. Don't ever believe the thinking or the teaching that says that the church replaced Israel. That's called replacement theology. It's where people want to say, well, Israel failed. And because they failed, the church stepped in and took their place. And so God doesn't have anything to do with Israel today. His promises are voided that He made with them. The covenants that He made with them, they're void. That's not true. The promises to Israel remain. The covenants that He made with His people remain to this very day. And they will till the end. Why? Not because Israel was faithful. But because God is faithful. Because God will fulfill what He says He's going to do. It's important for us to know that as Christians. Because when you're unfaithful, what does the Bible say? When you're faithless, God remains faithful to you. And how many times have we failed? And God still in His promise to you says, but I remain faithful to you. And to the promises that I made to you the day you gave your life to me. I promised you this and I will fulfill it. I will continue to call you a child of God, even in your failure. The other advantages, and Paul really only brings out really one advantage uh, in Romans chapter 3 here. He says, to you was committed the oracles of God. But looking ahead at chapter 9, when we get to uh, chapter 9 of Romans, we're going to see that Paul is going to give a full list of all the benefits that have been given to the Jew. Paul wrote, For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, my fellow Jews, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom our fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. These are all the benefits that Israel received. Psalm 147 verse 19 says, For God declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. God has given all of these statutes, all of His judgments to His people, Israel. But the other nations haven't received them. They don't have them. The next question in verse 3, for what if the Jews do not or did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? 
Paul knew all the right questions to ask. Remember, these are rhetorical questions that are being used to make a point and cause the Jew to think. He knew what they would ask. He knew the questions they would ask. And really what the Jew was asking is, did God fail then because some have not believed? In other words, is God a failure? He had this plan for the nation of Israel. He made all these promises and covenants with his people. And then they didn't believe in Jesus being their Messiah. And then they rejected him. Has has all this just been a failure for God? The Jews were thinking if we're standing under the condemnation of God, then does this nullify or does it void His promises towards us? Paul just made that statement that they also stand under the condemnation of God. And so what about all these promises, these covenants? Does He nullify all of them? The reasoning was... Will God's redemptive plan for Israel be nullified just because some don't believe? That's the question that's being posed. We're going to see, and we need to know this as Christians, that God has not cast away His people. Do you all know that? God has not cast away His people, but He has, in a sense, set them aside. We're in the time of the Gentiles. God is dealing with the Gentile nations of the world today. Yes, there are Jews that are getting saved. But for the most part, God is dealing with the Gentile nations. And the Jew, in a sense, because of their disbelief, has been just set aside. And then God's going to pick that time clock up again when you get to the tribulation period where God is once again going to intervene because of His faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And He's going to save a remnant of His people. And He's going to fulfill the promises and the covenants all the way to the end for the nation of Israel. Paul wrote in Romans 11.1, He says, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not is the answer to it. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? That's what what Paul says would be the question the Jews would have in their mind. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, 
The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is going to be faithful to them, not because of their faithfulness, but because of His faithfulness. The same way that He is towards you and I. Paul's answer to uh, verse 3 is in verse 4. He says, certainly not. Or God forbid that you would think this way. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul says, certainly not. Uh, When we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, chapter 9 is Israel in the past. Chapter 10 is Israel present day. Chapter 11 is Israel in the future. Each one of those, 9, 10, and 11, is going to show to us that God is going to remain faithful to His promises. Certainly not, Paul says. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. And then he says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And now Paul begins to quote their own scriptures to support what he's saying. Paul is quick to tell them, let God be true. In other words, God remains true to His promises in contrast to man's. But every man a liar. That's the contrast. But then he quotes from Psalm 51.4 to his fellow Jew. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He's actually quoting uh, David's confession, if you know that psalm. Psalm 51, verse 4. This was David's confession before the Lord. And And he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. This is David's heart of repentance. That you, God, may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's using their scriptures to answer that question. Let every let God be true and every man a liar. Paul writing to Timothy in chapter 2 verse 13 says, "If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself." It says that God cannot deny himself. God can't change His mind when it comes to His promises. Did you know that? God cannot renege on any covenant or promise that He has ever made to the Jew or to you and I. Why? Because He would be unjust in doing so. He can't do it. He he remains faithful because He's held by His very character. But... Verse 5, but if our 
unrighteousness, speaking about the Jews, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, Paul says. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? In other words, if our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, then how can God judge me? In other words, if my unrighteousness actually makes God look even more righteous, then would He not be unfair in judging me? Because I'm actually doing this unjust act that is actually making Him look better. That's what they're saying. Since God is in control of all things, then even evil will ultimately demonstrate His righteousness. Have you ever heard anybody have that kind of skewed thinking? That even the evil acts that I do actually make God look better? There are some people that actually believe that the the wrongs and the things that we can do actually magnify God. That's skewed thinking. Some have said that this was maybe the type of thinking of Judas Iscariot that betrayed the Lord. Here he is, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. And in his evil and his rejection, his turning him over, that somehow or another that magnified the Lord. Because here's God using this vessel, Judas, to his own glory. That's the kind of thinking that somebody would have if they thought that way. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? How does he have the right then to judge me? What's the response? Verse 6. Certainly not. Or God forbid. Or never have that kind of thinking. For then how will God judge the world? Paul says if your reasoning, if your reasoning were true, then how would God judge this world? If that was right thinking. People have this tendency, don't they? Maybe we do the same. To justify their sin. They even believe that their lie, their evil can bring glory. Somehow make God look better. You know what? Hey, I'm just a sinner. You know I mean? Never perfect. You know I mean? Just... You know, and somehow or another, it's magnifying God. You see, God wants us to live righteously. God doesn't want us to make excuses for our sin. He wants us to desire to be obedient to Him. That's what He loves. So my sin doesn't magnify Him. It shows that He's a merciful God towards me. And that he would save me in my sin. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, 
Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is is just, Paul says, it's a just thing for God to bring condemnation upon those who act in this way. It's a just thing for God to execute righteous judgment against the world that refuses to turn to Him. He's just in doing so. Paul, in his way of dealing with the Jew and his mindset, he now turns to the Old Testament and he begins to quote their Old Testament to them. Paul is still making a case here that the whole world stands under the wrath of God, Jew and Gentile. And Paul wants all of mankind to see their need for the righteousness of God. Do you understand the righteousness of God that you need? Do you understand that in your personal life that I need His righteousness? I have no righteousness of my own. There's nothing good enough in me that is going to be able to stand before God someday. That I need His righteousness given to my account. Do you understand that that's the only way that you'll transfer from this life to be able to stand before God is if you stand in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul is now going to give the closing arguments He's going to bring about that final verdict for both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 9. What then? Uh, Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All means all. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Do Jews have an advantage over Gentiles? No. Do they have special privileges that have been given to them by God? Yes. But in regards to sin, no. In regards to sin, because you see, sin is sin whether it's Jew or Gentile. Their their privileges doesn't mean that God just says, well, you can do that. You're my chosen people. Sin is sin. We've concluded that both Jew and Gentile, that they're all under sin. The question is, what is sin? And you might say, why is that such a big question? Because there's a lot of people that have different definitions of sin. You know how you'll know that? Go out and start asking people randomly. How do you define sin? Do you know how many different kinds of answers that you will get out in this world today? People have all kinds of different ideas of what sin is. James 4.17 tells us a good definition of sin. Therefore, to him who knows to do good 
and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know to do good and you do not do it, to him it is sin. 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. It's against God's law. In Deuteronomy 9, 7, remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Speaking to the Jews. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. Paul's purpose in these concluding verses was to make both Jew and Gentile stand accountable before God and before His Word. Paul knew that his final appeal could not be just his own words. And that's why the rest of this portion that we're in today is Paul quoting their Scriptures to them. Have you ever tried to share the Gospel and tell tell somebody about the Lord using your own words? And then they go, well, that's nice. (laughs) That's good. You know, and, and, and they can almost kind of slough it off and they can say, well, you know, those are your words. But then when you open up the Word of God and you let them see that God says it in His Word, and you can see the difference, all of a sudden they realize, wow, that's in the Bible. Before you were just telling me your own word. Now you've just showed me something out of the Bible. And I became accountable to that. Paul says that sin is universal to Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who do, does good, no, not one. Does that seem inclusive? Does that, mean, does that seem like it covers everyone? It does to me. And that's why Paul here is stating it in this way. And he's quoting from Psalm 14. He's quoting their scriptures to them so that they won't wiggle out of it. That they won't say, these are your words, Paul. But this is actually in our Scriptures. Psalm 14.1 says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Actually, the literal reading of that reads this way, the fool has said in his heart, no God. That's, that's how it reads in the Hebrew. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's Paul in Romans here quoting from Psalm 14, verses 1-3. to In the Jews' mind, they just heard their Scriptures. 
It's important for us to know God's Word. It's important for us to use His Word. It's it's like a sword. It cuts. It speaks to the hearts of men and women when we use His Word. Verse 13 to 18, Paul begins now to describe the sinner. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He's describing the state of sinful man. Psalm 5.9 is what Paul is quoting from. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. Describing the sinner. Psalm 140 verse 3. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asp is under their lips. Selah. Psalm 10 verse 7. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. And then Jesus in Matthew 12.34 said to the religious Pharisees of the day, He says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, Jesus knows that what is in our hearts is what will come out of here. He knows that. Paul states here to his fellow Jews and to Gentiles, describing the sinner, their throat is an open tomb. In other words, it brings death. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asses under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Quoting Isaiah 59 verse 7, which reads this, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes the way, whoever takes the way shall not have peace. Verse 18, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the state of sinful man. No fear of God before their eyes. What a state to be in. For somebody to actually stand there and shake their fist at God and say, you know, hey, no fear here, man. I'm good. You know what I mean? That, that's quite the state to be in, isn't it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's pride. Paul's quoting from Psalm 36.1, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God in his eyes. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. For sinful man to be in that state with no fear is a scary place to be in. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and look what it says here, this is that final indictment of the Apostle Paul to Jew and Gentile, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world, notice it's the world, all of the world, both Jew and Gentile, may become guilty before God. This was the case that Paul was trying to, to make. This was the place he was wanting to bring Jew and Gentile to. That they would see their, the state that they are in. That they would see their sinfulness and the, and the reason why they need to run to God and to turn to Him. That every mouth may be stopped. How many, how many mouths are out there trying to reason with God and tell God this and tell God that? And if you are a God and if you are a loving God and if you would, you know, how many, how many of those kind of words roll off of people's lips in this world today? Paul, in these three chapters, has stopped every mouth. That all the world might become guilty before God. And then he concludes it in verse 20. Therefore, or because by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21, I've shared this verse in a past study, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. If I could get right with God by keeping the law, by doing good deeds, by doing this, by doing that, then Jesus Christ didn't need to come and die. As a matter of fact, He wasted His time in doing so. I could add to that. He didn't need to do what he did. I could have done it myself. Do not set aside, or the old King James, do not frustrate the grace of God. In Galatians 3.24, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Do you understand that the law was given to show man his sinfulness? To make sin even look more sinful? To put it all out on paper? To put it out before the whole world to see so they might be able to look at it and see where they stand before God? I can't live up to that. It's a tutor. It's, 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 it's a... It was given to show man the law is good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it couldn't save man. And when I started looking at the law, I realized I couldn't do it. And it slew me. 
And then, I, and then it made me want to run to Jesus Christ because He's my only hope of salvation. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Next week, now we're going to transition. This is the first big transition in the book of Romans. Transitioning from chapters 1, 2, and 3 now to justification by faith. This is where we get to hear the good news of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.